Am I on? Can you hear me, family? Yes, over there. Good. Good to see you guys. Uh, if you got your Bibles, grab them, uh, open them up. Jonah chapter 2 is where we are this morning. We're continuing our series in the book of Jonah, and Heather is going to uh, read our passage this morning. pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that is good and it's true. Thank you for being here with us today. I pray that God right now you would open up our eyes uh, that we could know and sense that you are here in the room uh, with us to speak to us. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive every good thing that you have to say to us, shape us, mold us, change us more into your likeness and into your image. We thank you for the great grace and love that you have shown to us and you've shown to us for many days and years. We are so thankful for all that you're about to do today. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the reasons that I like to preach through books of the Bible uh, is that it allows me to preach on topics that uh, are challenging or can be difficult at times and uh, no one can say that I have a personal agenda because we're just going to talk about what comes next uh, in the book that we are studying. And so we're, we are looking at chapter 2 of Jonah, and we're talking about how to navigate discipline. And uh, I actually had an introduction because this, was family, this is also Family Worship Sunday. Um, and my introduction was going to be engaging the kids, and they're gone now, and I don't know why. So it kind of wrecks my introduction. <laughs> Um, but uh, I was going to tell them, hey, your parents discipline you, and it's for your good. And your parents have been disciplined. They know what it's like to be disciplined by parents. And so they know what it, what it feels like to be you. They understand what it's like to be you. And so that means you can trust them even while they're disciplining you. Yeah, yeah, they're out. Okay. Well, maybe they're all gone. Okay, that sounds great too. Anyway, um, it, it's a good thing for us to understand that we can trust our parents. We can trust our father. Uh, in the story that Jonah has uh, that we're reading here, he has been disobeying God. He's been disobeying God, the calling to preach to his enemies. And uh, he's been thrown into the sea. He's drowning. He's about to die. He gets swallowed uh, with a great, in a great fish. But while he's under the water, 
and while he's in this fish, both of those things are instruments of God's discipline in his life. And Jonah writes a prayer about that experience that he has. Just like children being raised in a family that are disciplined by their loving parents, God, our loving Father, disciplines us, and he does it, get this, our whole life. Whereas children, they kind of grow out of that a little bit. We don't ever grow out of that. God doesn't have grandkids. God's got kids. He's got children. And we're always his children. Does that make sense? In fact, one of the signs, the Bible tells us one of the signs that we are actually legitimately true children of God is that God does discipline us in his love. It is a normal part of the Christian life for the rest of our life. So the question that we need to ask this morning is this. How do we navigate the waters of God's discipline when we find ourselves in those waters? Or to put it a different way, how do, we, how do we personally respond when God disciplines us? Three responses that I see in this text here that we're going to talk about today. Three responses. Engage, acknowledge, and remember. We need to engage, acknowledge, and remember. So we're going to look at each of those in their turn. First of all, we need to engage with God. When God has disciplined us, we need to engage with God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me out of the belly shield. I cried, and he heard my voice. You heard my voice. One thing that Jonah does well in this passage, Jonah does some things not so well in this passage. This is maybe his shining moment in the book. Everything else he does, a lot of things not good. This is the part where he actually does some things good. And some things not so good. But one of the things that he does well when God disciplines him is that he calls out to God. He calls out to the Lord. Remember, up until this point, he's been running from the presence of the Lord. That's not a, that's not a small thing, right? Amen? That's kind of a big deal. <laughs> now he turns to the Lord in prayer. He says, in his distress... He does not remain quiet. He does not keep his thoughts to himself. He is talking to God. There's two basic ways to respond to God's discipline. We either engage him or we resist him. There's different variations of that, but it's pretty much those two kind of categories. Either we, we uh, call out or we keep quiet. When we experience God's discipline, we tend to have a, we have a tendency to get very stoic. Do you understand what I mean by that? We just, you know, no emotion. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to react. I'm just going to put the emotions on check. I'm just going to put my head down. I'm going to grit my teeth, and I'm going to just trudge through this on my own, and I'm going to make it. I'll just get through this. I'm just going to keep on keeping on. What is underneath that thinking is this belief, because we need to understand this. What's underneath it is this thinking, there's this belief that God's discipline is punitive. That's what's motivating that actual response and reaction. He's merely punishing us through our circumstances. He's not trying to shape us into his image and into his likeness. So in our mind, since we believe that, we think it's punitive, you know what, we're just doing time. We did the crime, we're just doing our time. And so we're just going to go wait till the time runs out, till we've done our time, till we've completed whatever that is, and just bear it so that we can get on with our life. Because this is just kind of getting in the way of life. That is not the purpose of God's discipline, family. 
That's not his purpose. And so responding in that way is a waste of your time. It's a waste of your energy. It is a waste of your life to respond in that way. Here is what God is doing in his discipline. He is engaging you and me in a relationship. He's engaging us in a relationship. He wants us to interact with him. I remember uh, being disciplined by my parents when I was a kid. It just... It just happened a couple of weeks ago, so it's still fresh in my mind. That was a joke. Duel got it. Uh, I, I remember being a kid and getting disciplined by my parents. And they, were, they took the time to explain, okay, here's why we discipline you. Here's, what's, here's what we're seeing, and this is why we're doing this with you. And there was my response. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know, Dad. I know. I know, Mom. I know. They were trying to, they were trying to engage me, and I would just shut it down. Shut that engagement down. Shut that conversation down. I'm just going to do my time and bear it. I know. Well, guys, don't we do that with God? We do. We're tempted to respond that way to the Lord, too. I know. I know, God. I know why you're doing this. Uh, I got it figured out. Hey, are we done here? Can I go now? Can, can I go now? That's shutting down instead of calling out for guidance and strength. It's just kind of a grown-up adult version of it. God wants us to engage him in our distress, and we can, we can do that a lot of different ways. One of the ways we do that is through prayer. Engage him by talking to him. Yes, out loud, as if he's in the room, because he is. Just talk to him. We can do that through journaling. We can do that through writing poetry. That's one thing that I'm doing this year. I'm writing, I want to write 12 poems by the end of the year. I've got six. I mean, that's what Jonah did. That's a poem. That's a psalm. We can do this. We can engage God, his heart, by singing. That's engaging him. Through weeping, through crying, through reading the scriptures. But find a way to engage God instead of shutting down. He wants to have this relationship with you. That's what he's doing. Second way we respond is that we need to acknowledge that God is accomplishing his purposes. God is accomplishing his purposes in this time of discipline. Look at verses three, verse 3 here. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah holds God responsible for what's happening to him. Did you notice he says uh, that you cast me into the deep? Well, last time I checked in chapter 1, the sailors cast him into the deep. At the request of Jonah, right? Did I read that right? He says, you cast me into the deep. God's hold, Jonah's holding God responsible for what's going on in his life. He's acknowledging that God is sovereign over all that happens in his life. The sweet and the sour. The painful and the pleasurable. God's responsible for all of that. God's at work at the storm that was drowning him. God is at work at the great fish that has swallowed him alive. And Jonah gets this right also. He does. He sees what he is experiencing as ultimately, not immediately, but ultimately coming from the hand of a sovereign and good God. You see, in order for us to navigate God's discipline, we need to acknowledge that God is accomplishing his purpose.
purposes through those circumstances. Though the discipline is painful, guys, look at me. Though the discipline is painful, there's no disagreement about that. It is not pointless. It's not pointless. And just random thing that came into your life for no good reason. You need to know that to navigate the discipline. It's not meaningless. It has a purpose. In fact, it is accomplishing multiple purposes. I think it was John Piper who once said, God is accomplishing a thousand things in your life right now, and you might be aware of three. So we need a little bit of humility when we're going through these times. There's not one thing he's doing. The writer of Hebrews gives us some insight into what's going on in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. The writer says this, Besides all this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? Verse 10, for they, the earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. He's saying this. We have had earthly fathers that were, they were good fathers. They weren't perfect, but generally they were good. And they disciplined us the best way they knew how for our good. And a lot of times they got it right. And sometimes they got it wrong. But they did the best that they knew how to do. And that was the motive of their heart to their discipline. Now, how much more, and we trusted them, how much more can we trust a perfect father who only does good through all the discipline he brings into our life so that we will have benefit from that? It's a lesser to greater argument. The answer is we should trust him much more. Verse 11, for the, in the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. And Crossway said amen, right? All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been what? Trained. By it. So he's using a bunch of different ways of explaining discipline, different categories. You were being trained by it. Now, that's an unusual way of seeing God's discipline, isn't it? That's interesting. There's two main types of, of discipline. Sometimes we have this very flat understanding of theology of God and what's going on. And God needs to give us multiple categories to think in. We need new categories to think and understand what's going on. And there's two main types of discipline. The writer of Hebrews talks about this. We know this from earthly parenting, and the same holds true with God, our heavenly parent. There is formative discipline, and there is corrective discipline. Now, Corrective discipline is used to get our attention and get us back on track. Wake us up. That's corrective discipline, which is exactly what Jonah is experiencing in the belly of this nice hot fish that he's surviving in. The purpose of corrective discipline is to save us from death. And so parents, when we parent our children... You are on a rescue mission. And you approach it as a rescue mission. I am saving you, son, from death. I love you. 
Here's the right way. You're over here. I'm bringing you over here. I am correcting you. I'm veering you back because I'm, I'm on a rescue mission to save you from destruction. And those that are around you, it brings us back to God where there is love and there's life and there's hope and there's peace and there's true ultimate happiness. There is none of that apart from God. God said, I want to bring you back to me where that is. Because God loves us, he will correct us when we deliberately and consistently rebel against him and walk against the grain. We continue to flee from the presence of our God. He loves us enough to correctively discipline us. God will not bless sin. and won't ignore it. Some people say, yeah, well, God will forgive me. God will forgive every sin that I do, every act of rebellion that I do. God will forgive me so I can do whatever I want. Well, the first half of that's right. God does forgive every sin, past, present, and all the stuff you hadn't even thought up to do yet, let alone do. He's forgiven all of that in Christ. That's right. God will forgive you, but that does not mean that he will remove the earthly consequences of your rebellion. It just means that he has graciously removed the eternal consequences of those rebellious acts and rebellious mentality. And thank God for that. But we can't get this twisted up, guys. God loves us enough to let us feel the pain of our consistent and deliberate disobedience. Why? Why? Just so we feel bad? No. So that we will turn. So that we will come home where there's life and love and peace. Now, we're not experiencing that. I love you guys, so I gotta ask some hard questions. You guys ready? Are you living in open rebellion against God today? I'm not like you have to like search and figure that out because maybe you might have accidentally. Do you understand? You know what I mean? Like, are you li- like you know, like you know that you know, because it came to your mind as soon as I asked the question. Are you living in open, defiant rebellion against God right now in your life, brother or sister? Are you feeling the sting of God's discipline in your life right now? I can't answer that for you. Only you can answer it. If that's you, then listen, 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 listen. Here's what you need to do, okay? Don't get angry. Get sorry. Don't get angry. Get sorry. Don't sorrow over your loss of a relationship, your loss of that scholarship, your loss of freedom, your loss of the career or the money. Don't sorrow over the fact that you lost those blessings. Okay? Please don't waste that. Sorrow over your pride that you actually believe that you could find true happiness apart from the God that made you, loved you, and saved you. And then do this. Don't stay there, though. Thank him. You heard me. Thank him in the discipline. 
Thank God that he loves you enough to correct your course before it is too late. As the proverb says, that you are hurt beyond cure, which is what happens to fools. Thank him. You're paying attention to me. You're coming after me. You must love me. Thank him for that warning sign. There's another category we need to think of in discipline. It's called formative discipline. And this has nothing to do with correcting rebellious behavior, okay? You guys tracking with me? The purpose of formative discipline is to shape us or train us so that we will be ready for the next chapter of our life, the next chapter in God's story in our life, okay? It's to shape us with the skills, the capacities, and the character, the character that we will need to function properly in life. That's formative discipline. That's its purpose. Every good parent, every good coach that's worth his salt administers formative discipline to their students, their players, or their children. And that's how you can tell a good coach and a parent from a bad one. We're all going to do this one way or the other. How do we know if we're doing it well? Here's how we know. A young child does not know what foods are good for them to eat growing up. They just don't know. And they don't know what they don't know. They don't know about calories and fat and sugar. They don't know about dyes. They don't know about quantities. The parent knows about all of that stuff, and they don't know about any of that. So the parent doesn't teach their child how to make good choices by saying, hey, little Johnny, here's 15 things. What do you want to eat? You make the choice. And that's how I'm going to tell you and train you how to make good choices. You just pick whatever you want because they're going to pick whatever is red and bright and shiny. That's what they're going to pick. They don't know what they don't know. A parent makes those choices for the child. And it feels so restrictive to the child, doesn't it? And to other people. I just let them have that. It's not, it's not about the food. It's about the training to make choices. You, you, the parent is showing them, this is what a good choice looks like, tastes like, feels like, sounds like. Why? So that when they're older, they will know what a good choice is when mom and dad aren't around. Because mom and dad aren't going to always be around and make that choice for them. They're going to need that. A coach makes his players run sprints every practice. Lift weights, makes his players do drills. The players want to get there, throw on the jersey, and just go play five-on-five and see what's going to happen because that's fun. And the coach says, no, I'm restricting you. You're going to run till you can't breathe, and then you're going to shoot 100 free throws. Why? Because he's mean and hates him? No. Because he cares about him. It's restrictive, it's painful, it's tiring, it's not relaxing, it's not enjoyable. But there is a purpose behind that formative discipline is to shape them into the players that they will need to be before they meet their opponents on game day. And the coach knows the opponents that they're going to be on game day. He's been going over the films. He's getting them ready. What an awful coach to say, I'll give you a job to do, and I will not, let you, not help you get ready for that. Go do your best. Try your hardest. 
Neither the child nor the player did anything wrong to receive that kind of discipline, amen? They're on the right track. They're on the right team. They're in the right home with the right family. It's, it's being administered to them to train them, shape them, equip them, ready them for the things that are coming down the road that they're going to need to fully function as an adult in life so they're not deformed. They're formed well. You guys tracking with me? In that same way, the purpose of God's formative discipline in our life is to strengthen, to sculpt, and to ready our character for the calling he has put on our life, which is to live with him in holiness, which is to share the gospel with our enemies and those that are lost. How can you comfort those when you have never needed comfort yourself? Explain that to me. How is that possible? I mean, you can throw them like, say, take 2 Romans 8.28 and call me in the morning. I guess you could do that, right? God works for the good and all those that are loved by him and call according to his purpose. But are you equipped, shaped, and ready for that? How can you really warn others of the, the pleasures of money and career and popularity are fleeting if you've never had those taken from you for a time? How can you really warn them about that? How can you do these things and speak to others about their need for grace? If you have never needed grace yourself, because until that point happens, grace is nice, but it's not amazing, and it's not necessary. Grace is necessary, amen? But you can't know that until you have felt that it is necessary. When you personally experience God's grace, when you deserve his justice, when you have personally experienced deep comfort while you were weeping your eyes red, when you experience how satisfying God alone is, even when he's withhold his blessings from you for a time, you become fit for the calling that he has on your life. You are fit to share those things with others. And why? Because you have shared in them yourself. It's not just true. It's real, as I like to say. And God's all about making true things real things. God's discipline feels like loss. It feels like restriction on our freedom at times. It feels painful at the time, but it produces something beneficial in us. And it also produces something helpful for others that are around us. This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain to us. We share in that reward, if you want to call it that, that benefit. Look, that's, that, that's not the whole answer. I know that. It's just a part of the answer that helps us endure or navigate through God's discipline, okay? Third response we need to remember, and particularly we need to remember that the Lord saves those that he loves. The Lord saves those that he loves. Look at verses 7 and 8 right here. Jonah, this is Jonah talking. When my life was fainting away, when my life was ebbing away, do you know people, their life, it, just did, it wasn't over in a car crash? It was just ebbing away, drip by drip. Do you know what I'm talking about? This is what he's experiencing. 
When my life was ebbing away, fading away, I remembered the Lord. I remembered the Lord, and my prayers came to you into your holy temple, into your presence. Those that pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's chesed. That's God's covenant, unbreaking love. God saves Jonah from certain death in the cold ocean by swallowing up with a big fish for three days. Woo, but he was happy about that. God didn't send a boat, he sent a big fish. And, and, you know, I always got this picture when I was a kid that it was like a whale, it was like this huge thing, and he's like sitting in like this three-bedroom apartment or something, and he's just like having his cappuccino, and he's got all this space, he's just writing his poem, he's writing a psalm. I don't think it was that way at all. It was just barely big enough to get him in there. <laughs> like a little mummy bag, sleeping bag. So God rescues him in a sense, but it is not the final rescue. That's what I'm trying to get across. It's not the final rescue. He still has to be rescued from the fish that God appointed to save him. He's still in the midst of God's discipline. He's living between this initial salvation and his final salvation. So in one sense, he has been rescued from the grave, from death. But in another sense, he's still waiting to be rescued from the grave. That's how he understands this, the belly of Sheol, the grave. And get this, Jonah believes that God will actually give him that full and final salvation, that resurrection from the grave that he desperately needs right now. He actually believes God's going to give that to him. Isn't that crazy, guys? Now, now, I don't know if you asked this question while you were reading through this, but I did. How can Jonah be so certain that God is going to answer this prayer, this prayer of salvation? How can Jonah be so confident? He's praying as if it has already happened. Did you notice that? You have done it. You have heard me. I have been saved. But yet he still needs that to be saved. How can he be so confident that his call for mercy is going to be received by God, the God that's disciplining him? What gives, Jonah? Were you thinking about that when, we, when, when Heather got up here and read this? He's been running from the presence of the Lord up until this point. He's done nothing to deserve God's salvation, yet he's confident he believes it'll happen to him. Here's what I think. Here's what I think is going on. I think that he is leaning on God's steadfast covenant love right now. He's leaning on the love of God. Like a good prophet, Jonah is looking forward by faith to a time he can't clearly see right now, but by faith he is looking forward. He is grabbing hold of something by faith in his God who redeems. Some way, somehow, I don't know how, I don't know when, but he's thinking some way, somehow, God is going to make a way for covenant breakers to be reconciled to God. He is remembering God's steadfast covenant love. This is what allows him to have hope. Get this, right in the middle of the discipline. Right smack in the middle of while it's still going on, he is able to have hope in his God. The belief that God's discipline is not punitive. It will not destroy us. That is what punitive means. Punishment means. It means to break someone down. To destroy them. And he believes that it's not going to destroy us, even though it hurts us for a season. It's uncomfortable for a time. 
And this is our buoy, brothers and sisters, that keeps us from sinking under God's discipline. We need to remember that God saves those that he loves. God saves those that he loves. So we need to remember that God will hear our prayers. God will. Our prayers will reach him. He will sustain him, sustain us under the hand of his heavy discipline. He will not abandon us. He will save us. And how can we be so sure in the midst of that? How can we be so certain? Because God has made a way to deal with my sin in such a way that my sin is fully paid and I live. That's how we know. God has made a way where my sin is fully paid and I survive because I didn't pay for it. Amen? That's the good news. The perfect and loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the way. It's the way of salvation. That's how it happens. Look at Hebrews again, chapter 12. Verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 12, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected, and if you haven't got the thrust of that, he adds it emphatically, perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. God has perfected those that he is perfecting. God has perfected those that he is sanctifying. He's disciplined. He's shaping. There's your anchor. There's your sure hope. Jesus, when Jesus was on the cross and darkness was closing in upon him on that cross and his life was slowly ebbing away drop by drop by breath by strained breath, he remembered the Lord like Jonah, did he not? His thoughts went up to his father, did it not? He cried out to the father in his distress, yet his prayers were not acknowledged by the father. He quoted a psalm, just like Jonah. He read a psalm. Look at this, Psalm 22 on the cross. Is this not the psalm that Jesus read? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning? His words, his prayers did not go to the presence of God. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer me. By night I find no rest. Yet, 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 he says, you are holy. God saves those that he loves. At the cross, Jesus was sinking below the earth, and he was not rescued. He was swallowed up, not in a fish, but in death, in the grave. He was swallowed up whole, was he not? Jesus was crushed under God's punitive punishment so that we, could, that we would only and ever receive the loving and life-shaping discipline of our Heavenly Father. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for Chad Lingle. I am so glad that he did that for me. When his prayers for relief were ignored. Why? So that your prayers for relief in the midst of the discipline would absolutely be heard. Oh, and more so. Oh, and more so than heard. They would be answered. Oh, they would be answered. 
when we remember what Jesus did for us, we can navigate God's discipline so much better. That is the anchor for our soul. That is the buoy for our life. He loves you that much. I love you too. Let's pray. God, we love you. We love you. Oh, thank you for loving us. All your ways are good. All your ways are perfect. Lord, you love us in ways that seem painful for a time, and you love us in ways that seem pleasant for a time, but they are all for our good and for your glory, and they will shape us, and they will reap, we will reap benefits from that. That's the rewards that we get of what you are forming and crafting in our life, and you're doing that in the lives. I know of a lot of people here in this room we want to thank you for that. We want to engage you in that. We want to acknowledge that you're accomplishing multiple purposes that we're not even aware of right now. And so help us be steadfast because we know that, that you love us. Help us remember that you love us. You love us, you love us to death. <laughs> you're the only one that can actually honestly say, I love you to death. Because you did. And we have life in you. And we thank you for it. Help us trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.